All right. Well, thank you, Sean. I definitely know your brothers um, quite well. So, yeah, and uh, the Hollingsworths, of course, and their son is up at Emmaus. This, so, yeah, lots of mutual connection. So good to be with you all. Um, I was supposed to come in 2021, and the week I was supposed, Evan called me the, a year in advance, and we'd been planning this, and then the, the week that I was to come, I got COVID, and so that ended that. So it's so good to be here. I was here one other time. I should have looked. I have it written down somewhere, but it's probably about 10 years ago. So it's great to be back and to be able to share in the ministry of the word with you this weekend. What a privilege uh, to do so. And uh, I invite you to turn to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. Um, our assembly at Arbor Oaks Bible Chapel um, I understand John Glock comes here regularly. John's part of our fellowship at uh, Arbor Oaks, John and his family, so we appreciate them. But we've been going through the Gospel of Mark um, uh, a little over a year now, and it's just been such a such a sweet study for us as we've uh, dug in and, and really looked carefully at the Lord Jesus and how Mark presents the Lord Jesus. And uh, it's just so important for us as believers to have our focus on Christ, to keep coming back to him as as central in our in our affections, in our worship, of course, in our in our witness, but also in in our daily walk as believers, as disciples of the Lord Jesus in the routine of life to keep Christ at the center. Um, And John Piper wrote a little book that is an excellent little book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And that's what our study in the Gospel of Mark has helped us do, is just see him and savor him. And what we told our assembly, uh, I'm sure you all would resonate with with this, when we launched our series of of uh, the Gospel of Mark was that one of our priorities at at Arbor Oaks, I'm sure the same is true here at Northern Hills, is that we want to be a Christ-centered assembly. And our message is not that programs and services in and of themselves make us spiritual, whatever that means today. No, our message is starts with the Gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He is the Savior that we need, and through trusting Him and His work, we experience God's forgiveness and His redemption. We experience eternal life. But the Scriptures also teach us us that as we continue to look to Christ, that's how we are transformed. As we behold His glory, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, That's how we are being transformed more and more into his image. And our sense of calling to follow him is refreshed and renewed and 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 encouraged. So we want to be a church. You want to be a church that says, look to Jesus, listen to him, get to know him, center on him. And so I thought it would be good in our four sessions together just to dig deep into the gospel of Mark selected four passages for us that also connect to our um, 
our role as disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so we want to see him and savor him, but also what does his call on our lives look like? What does discipleship look like for us? And Mark is very helpful with that. If I could summarize the gospel of Mark, I would say that Mark's purpose is to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Remember, that's how the very first verse opens, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is how Mark is presenting Jesus to us as the Son of God. But this Son of God does something unexpected, at least in terms of the reaction of people when Jesus starts to announce this. He suffers for our salvation. He dies for us. He rises again. But he also calls us to true discipleship. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark, helps unfold what that looks like. So our first passage tonight is in chapter 6, and turn with me there and let's read verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word and for uh, the way it reveals the Lord Jesus to us. As we look into this passage tonight, we pray that we would see him clearly, that we would delight in him, and that by your spirit you would do a gracious work in us, drawing us afresh to him in our love and commitment. We pray in his name. Amen. For many people, a trip to their hometown is is a happy occasion, uh, something to look forward to. It's a chance to see family, to reconnect with some friends. It's an opportunity maybe to take a a stroll down memory lane. Last year, I made a, a brief trip to my hometown in Canada, and it had been a few years since I had been there. 
And I didn't tell my mom I was coming, so I surprised her and uh, almost gave her a heart attack. Um, but uh, what a delight that was. I remember driving down a road I used to ride my bike on as a teenager, and a wave of nostalgia washed over me. For many of us, those are the kinds of things that we look forward to when we go to our hometown. Well, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus pays a visit to his hometown, Nazareth. But he wasn't coming back to Nazareth for a a vacation or to, to see his old home and visit his family and friends. He was on a mission. He came to preach and to teach. And the reality was he was coming back to Nazareth, not as the local boy, He was coming back, presenting himself as the Messiah. Think of that. The long-awaited Messiah from Nazareth. Uh, Now, surely his own people, once they realized this, they would be excited. They would be excited to see him and receive him. They'd been hearing about his extraordinary ministry, and surely they'd welcome him with open arms. But, as we've seen, that's not at all what happens. Jesus faces rejection in his hometown. His disciples are with him, and they see this rejection firsthand. In fact, witnessing this rejection was part of of the way Jesus was actually preparing them because he was going to send them out on a mission, and they would would face rejection as well. So this is part of the disciples' training. Now, I think that's a a very important lesson for us today because for a number of reasons. One reason is we have prosperity preachers running around telling people that the normal Christian life is all about triumph and success, certainly not trials. And I don't think the word rejection would be in their vocabulary. Of course, we also have a very secular uh, world that is characterized by a rejection of Jesus Christ and his teaching. And so it's good for us to wrestle with this issue of rejection as disciples of Jesus. So I think this is a a passage that can correct maybe some unbiblical expectations that we might have about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. Well, you'll notice as we've read our text, verses 1 through 13, that really there are two main sections in the passage. First, in verses 1 through 6, we might call a sad rejection, a sad rejection. The second in verses 7 through 13, an important commission, a sad rejection, an important commission. Jesus is going to send the 12 disciples on a mission, but We might ask the question, is there anything to relate these two sections? They seem almost separate. Yes, there is. And I've already hinted at it. Uh, But back in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, when Jesus was appointing the 12 disciples, uh, Mark uh, 3.14 says that he appointed them so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. Now, so far, they have been with him. 
That was one of the reasons he appointed them, that they would be with him. And so they've been learning from from him. That's that's part of the role of a disciple. Another way to to translate the word disciple is a learner. Uh, They were daily listening to his teaching. They were asking him questions. They were seeing his miracles. They were with him. And that was a tremendous blessing. But now for the first time, he's going to send them out to preach. That was part of his training program for them. Send them out to serve. Send them out on a mission. But here's the connection with the first part of our passage. Before sending them out, he takes them to his hometown. And there they learn a lesson that will be very helpful, very valuable, very important for them on their mission. And that is... The reality of rejection. Not everyone is going to welcome them with open arms. Not everyone will be excited to hear their message. Some will be hostile to them. And the disciples get a get a up up close and personal example of that as Jesus comes back to his hometown. There are people who reject Jesus strongly. So let's look, first of all, at this sad rejection in verses 1 through 6. Now, we're jumping into chapter 6, so we've skipped, obviously, a lot. Up until until this point, Jesus had been ministering around Galilee. He was particularly centered in the city of Capernaum. And now he's come back to Nazareth. We learn in chapter 1 that that he was preaching the gospel of God throughout the towns of Galilee. Mark 1.15 summarizes the message that he was preaching. It was this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, there was a lot more to that and, and he unpacked, but that's Mark's summary of what he was preaching. He was also preaching with a kind of authority that people had not encountered before. He was doing works that people had not seen before. He was doing the works of the Messiah, the Son of God. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was even forgiving sins. Remember the story of the paralytic in chapter 2. And in chapters 2 and uh, through through three and up through five, what we see is people, when they encounter Jesus, when they hear him, when they see him, they are amazed. They are amazed at his authoritative teaching and his mighty works. At the same time, people are amazed and as they hear and, and see Jesus, you have the religious leaders' opposition to Jesus um, solidifying. Their anger against him rising. Most uh, most recently, though, we are at least really through the whole section up until this point. You have these twin things going on. You have the the religious leaders opposed to Jesus, but you also have people believing in Jesus. So in chapters four and five, Jesus is doing some extraordinary things. First of all, at the end of chapter 4, he demonstrates his lordship over nature by calming the storm. You remember that story. 
And then in chapter five, he demonstrated the beginning of chapter five. He demonstrates his lordship over the spiritual realm. There's the story of the man with the legion of demons and they fall before Jesus. Jesus casts them out of the man. And then the second section of chapter five, we have two examples of his lordship over the physical realm. The, The woman who had the disease for 12 years and no one, she could get relief from Noah. The doctors couldn't, couldn't cure her. She had spent all her money. Her, her resources were gone. And yet she comes to Jesus and in a touch, she is, she is healed. And then if that wasn't dramatic enough, Jesus heals Jairus's daughter by raising her from the dead. He is Lord even over death itself. And so people are seeing these miraculous things and and believing on Jesus. As as one commentator puts it, as we come into chapter six, Jesus is riding a wave of powerful deeds and popular acclaim. Now he comes home, Nazareth, the place he grew up, and the balloon quickly bursts. On the Sabbath... He did as he typically uh, um, would practice. He'd go. He went to the synagogue and he taught from the scriptures. Verse two says, as people listened to him, they were astonished. Now, that was a common response Um, in the synagogue in Capernaum. Mark one twenty two says they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were considered authoritative teachers, but compared to Jesus, they looked like schoolboys. But here in Nazareth, the astonishment that is expressed is of a different character. It's not positive astonishment. It's more like surprise and almost um, a negative kind of astonishment. Now, the people had heard reports about Jesus. Now they had the opportunity to hear Jesus for themselves. But instead of responding in faith, they are very skeptical. Notice what we see in uh, verses two and three. Where did this man not even they don't even use his name. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom giving given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? They don't know what to make of him. In chapter three, the scribes tried to spread the rumor that Jesus was doing his works by dark forces, demonic force, Beelzebub. And the scribes tried to spread that rumor that Jesus was doing doing those works in a don't think they're of God. They're they're of the devil. And so is that what is going on? Some of the people were probably thinking. There's an account in Luke 4 that's probably parallel to our passage. And we learn there that Jesus read in the in in the synagogue at Nazareth, the clear messianic passage from Isaiah 61, which says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. You know, the word anointed is really the word for Messiah. So he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind 
And then Jesus, Jesus then gave perhaps the world's shortest sermon. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's close in prayer. But that was probably the most powerful sermon in history. Today, this this scripture predicting the Messiah, this has been fulfilled in your hearing because I've shown up. I'm here. I'm I'm that one. Well, this was too much for the people of Nazareth. They knew Jesus when he was just a boy. They saw him grow, grow up. They knew his family, his brothers, his sisters. He played with their children. He was an ordinary local boy who had become a local carpenter. Who does he think he is saying these kinds of things? As one writer put it, it stretches credulity to believe that a local carpenter who made Aunt Tilly's chest of drawers or Isaac and Beulah's kitchen table could possibly be some kind of messianic figure. Charles Cranfield says, they couldn't see through the veil of his ordinariness. There was no halo over Jesus' head. Though he was the Son of God, he came as a real human and lived in that condition as a true man. He lived a real human life. Remember Isaiah 53 says he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And almost as a commentary on the people of Nazareth, he was despised and rejected by men. It's interesting in verse 3, notice the townspeople ask, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, in Jewish society, a man would be identified with his or by his father, almost like our our surnames today. And that was true even if the father had died, as Joseph probably had. But the people of Nazareth call Jesus, not the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, not because they believed in the virgin birth but probably because they knew the story that Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary were officially married. So they were perhaps implying here that Jesus was illegitimate. This was an insult. Verse 3 ends, and they took offense at him. They were scandalized by Jesus. They rejected his message and his authority. Luke's account actually goes further and says they were filled with wrath and they drove him out of town and even tried to throw him down a cliff. In the face of such unbelief and rejection, Jesus in verse four quotes a proverb to the effect that a a prophet is shown honor everywhere except in his hometown and among his own relatives. If you Turn back to chapter 3, verse 21. There was an occasion after Jesus had done some miracles and people were following him and he had called the 12 disciples. His family came for a, an intervention. Chapter three twenty-one. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. They think he's crazy. Contempt for Jesus 
we, we have an English phrase, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity, yes, but contempt drips from the page here, doesn't it? And John 1 verse 11 summarizes it best, perhaps. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, that's interesting because people love their hometown heroes, don't they? You make it to the big leagues or if you become a pop star, uh, you make a name for yourself. Your hometown will be proud. The mayor will give you the keys to the city. They'll name a, a street after you. But people don't love local prophets because prophets have a way of confronting sin and unbelief as Jesus did. And this is hardly the way to become popular. Philip Ryken makes this observation from Jesus' words uh, about a prophet not being honored in his hometown and among his relatives. He writes this. Maybe this is one of the reasons why many Christians have trouble persuading their own family members to accept Jesus Christ. You ever had that that challenge? He says they speak to their families with a prophetic voice, exposing their sin and warning them about the coming judgment. Sometimes God calls us to this kind of ministry, but often it is better simply to embrace our families with the love that we have found in Christ, taking the role of a caring servant rather than a confronting prophet. Well, despite despite Jesus' mighty works, despite his authoritative teaching, the people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who's grown up and returned for a visit. And as a result, notice verse 5. Verse 5 says, He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's almost a little bit of irony. We would think laying your hands on a few sick people and and healing them is a mighty work. But uh, the point is that in the midst of their unbelief and rejection of Jesus, they were denied seeing more of the glory of Christ on display. It's not that it was impossible for Jesus to do mighty works. But again, it was their unbelief that deprived them of seeing more of who Jesus really was, receiving the grace of God that that others had experienced through Jesus who came to him and received him. In fact, the, the, the verse says that their unbelief amazed Jesus. People throughout Galilee had been amazed at Jesus. They'd never seen anything like what he was teaching or, or, and doing. They were amazed. But Jesus now, it's his turn to be amazed. And what is he amazed at? He's amazed at the unbelief in his hometown. They were blind to his true identity. They were deaf to his message. Their hearts were hardened against him. And they couldn't see the glory that was before them. The story is told of a tourist who went to a a famous art gallery. And he was eager to see everything in the, the gallery. And so he... He decided what he'd do is he'd just rush from painting to painting and and really approaching it that way. He didn't really even notice what was in the frames. And so he was successful. He made it through the gallery. And as he left, he said to one of the guards, I didn't see anything very special here. 
Sir, the guard replied, it's not the paintings that are on trial here. It's the visitors. And often we miss the glory of Christ because we're like that man. We're rushing around to and fro and we don't stop to see what we have before us in the person of Christ. There are actually only two occasions recorded in the Gospels when Jesus is said to be amazed or marvel at something. He marveled, you may remember, at the Roman centurion who said he was unworthy to have Jesus come stay at his house uh, or even come to his house. But if Jesus would just say the word where he was, he knew he believed that Jesus could heal his servant. Matthew 8.10 says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So he marvels at the faith of a Roman centurion. But the other occasion is right here. He marvels at the unbelief in his own hometown. I wonder, don't you? I wonder what would amaze Jesus about us. Would he marvel at our faith? Would he marvel at your complete trust in him despite difficulties and rejection and heartache and confusion, but you nevertheless cling to him and believe in him? That's what pleases him. Or would Jesus marvel at our lack of Willingness to trust him in difficult circumstances, despite our knowledge of scripture, despite all that we have seen him do throughout the years, despite the fact that we've maybe trusted him for salvation, we maybe even serve him in various ways. But we find ourselves when difficulties come into our lives, when we encounter rejection, perhaps complaining, falling into doubt and skepticism when opposition and setbacks come into our lives. And Jesus, I wonder how often he's amazed at our response. Don't be like the people of Nazareth. That's a convicting response to my heart. Don't be like the people of Nazareth. This gospel was written and and really all the gospels, all the New Testament, all the Bible was written to give us abundant reasons to, to trust Jesus Christ and to keep trusting him, especially when it's hard and the work doesn't seem to be going so well. But we continue to trust him. Now, one more observation before we move on to the second part of our text. The fact that Jesus is rejected even by his relatives and his neighbors and the people of his hometown should give us realistic expectations for our discipleship. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if the world opposes us. We shouldn't be surprised even with people in our own circle from our own family. Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. And I think, don't you agree, in our generation, in our culture, we are seeing the world hate the message of Jesus Christ. 
reject it in the most um, emphatic ways. How are we dealing with that? If our attachment to Jesus Christ is just for some perceived benefits we might we might receive, we probably won't have the stomach for this kind of rejection. We'll compromise at some point. But if we have become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because we know, we are convinced, we believe that he is Lord, he is the Son of God, he is our, our Savior, our precious Savior who laid down his life for us so that we can know God and be delivered from our sins and be reconciled to God and be redeemed and set free from our bondage to sin and, and, and know the joy of knowing God and knowing his son and having the Holy Spirit operative in our lives and having the privilege of serving him as the master and king, then when opposition comes, and it comes, and it will come, when rejection comes, when the difficulties come, we will keep standing for Christ and with Christ. By his, by his grace, we'll be willing to endure the rejection of the world for the acceptance of the king. And we'll have eyes to see that what we have in Jesus is far greater than anything the world could offer us. Well, the disciples witnessed the unbelief and rejection in Jesus' hometown. But again, this was part of their training. Jesus has been revealing himself to them. He's been teaching them. Now it was time for them to go forth and proclaim the good news about him. But Jesus was also preparing them to face this kind of rejection that he himself experienced. So we come to this important commission. Look again at verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus was rejected in his hometown, but that does not bring the, the mission to a screeching halt. And that should encourage us in our day where we are living in much rejection and opposition to the, the message of Scripture, the message of Christianity. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The mission goes forward. And it's true, as commentator William Lane says, unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances. And what we're what we see in this passage we've just read is that the disciples went out and they had success. People responded. No doubt they faced some rejection as well as Jesus prepares them for that. But the mission advances. The mission advances. How encouraging is that for us? Christ 
is still building his church. People are still responding to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord wants us to be prepared to face rejection and opposition, but not to allow that to discourage us so that we stay silent and we abandon the mission. No, the mission goes forward. Jesus, Jesus' work moves forward, and part of that work was to train the disciples to be fishers of men. He trains them, he commissions them to, to advance the mission, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And the fact that, <laughs> the fact that Jesus chooses to include the disciples in this important work in his mission is extremely gracious because the track record of the 12 up until this point, and as you know, reading the Gospels, the track record of the 12 wasn't exactly stellar, right? But as James Edwards, one of the commentators, put, points out, the sending of these particular individuals with all their flaws shows that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or the merit of the missionaries, but on the call and equipping of Jesus. How encouraging is that for us? We often feel, well, how can I, I speak to people in today's world? I'm, I got my own issues. I have all kinds of problems myself. I don't know. I probably can't answer their, all their questions. No. Jesus sends us and he equips us. He gives the Holy Spirit to to fill us. He gives the Holy Spirit to open the hearts of people we talk to. And he allows us with all our flaws and imperfections to be part of his work. What a wonderful thing. And in our text, Jesus gives the disciples here a particular commission. They were to go and proclaim his name. They were to call people to repent. He even gave them authority over unclean spirits since those forces would certainly try to hinder hinder the work. Notice, it's important to notice that it, the text says he gave them authority. They didn't have the authority in themselves. Their authority came from Jesus. Their ministry and preaching was to be ex, an extension of the ministry and preaching of Jesus. And in some ways, this... Um, mini short-term missions trip that they were launching on uh, was a foreshadowing of what they would be called to and what we are called to after the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus that's launched at on Pentecost. Notice they were sent out two by two. That's an important detail. Um, it's important because in the Jewish world, um, a matter must be established uh, by the testimony of two or three witnesses. But there's also much wisdom in this approach, and no doubt all of us could attest to this. Uh, it's hard to carry out ministry on your own. Two or more provides mutual encouragement and prayer and complementary gifts the joys of ministry are greater when we share them together. The disappointments uh, are still disappointing, but they're more endurable as we share the burdens together. What a, what a joy it is to serve the Lord together, to come together and, and pray that we would see him work and then go out and, and, and do what he's called us to do. 
And yes, there's sometimes opposition and rejection, but to bear that together, to bear one another's burdens. That's the design of Jesus' call for us to serve him. I'm privileged to serve as an elder in our local assembly, and I am so, so thankful for my other fellow elders. We pray together. Sometimes we weep together. We seek the Lord for wisdom together. And when we see the blessings of the Lord working, we are able to to rejoice together when we have challenges and hardships. We can we can bear that together. And I'm so thankful for the gifts that that my brothers have uh, that I don't have. Uh, And we can help one another. What a what a wonderful thing to serve together. The Lord calls us to do various things in the local church, but to to view it as not my ministry, but the Lord's ministry that he has entrusted us together to serve him. So verses eight through 11, then give us some give the disciples some specific instructions for the mission. And and they're very interesting if you look at them. First of all, there's the provisions. They were to travel light, you might say, only the clothes on their back, the sandals on their feet and the walking stick in their hand. I think we would struggle with this. We when we go off on a trip, uh, it would be like taking basically your coat and a toothbrush. That would disqualify most of us, probably. Uh, We go for a weekend trip and we have three suitcases and the ladies have 12 pairs of shoes. And uh, yeah, this would this would be a struggle for us. But it's also fair of us to ask, well, why such simplicity as they go out? It seems that Jesus on this occasion of their first mission, Jesus was teaching them to learn to trust God. To learn to trust the one who had sent them and not their stuff. They should have a sense of focus, a sense of urgency about the mission. They shouldn't be cumbered and, and, and weighed down, distracted by lugging their suitcase behind them and all the different things. Now, I think there's an important principle in that for us, not being tied down by the world's goods. But I also want to be careful and not absolutize Jesus instructions here. In other words, to be faithful in ministry doesn't mean you've got to throw away everything and just walk around in a cloak and sandals and walking stick. That might get a reaction, but it's it's I don't think that Jesus is calling us to that per se, because in in later in Luke 22, he'll say to the disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, did you lack anything? They said no. He said, OK, great. Now take those things along with you. On the first mission. I think what Jesus is doing is weaning them from their dependence on stuff. Some of them had been successful businessmen. And they were probably dependent on their stuff to be successful in the work. They needed to learn to simply depend on Jesus, to go and obey him. Second, their accommodations, verse 10 says, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. They were also to be dependent on the hospitality of others. 
They weren't to bounce around from home to home, always looking for an upgrade. Uh, no, the message is be content. Don't dishonor your hosts by leaving when you get a better offer. Uh, that kind of behavior can actually undermine the message. Paul was very conscious about these kinds of things. Uh, he was always careful to conduct himself with integrity, lest people think he was trying to take advantage of them in some way, or he was in it for his own personal comfort or money or that kind of thing. Third, how should they respond to rejection? Jesus was, again, preparing them for this. And as he had been rejected in Nazareth, what should they do when their message was not received? When they weren't welcomed, when they weren't shown hospitality. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what's going on here? It was customary for Jews to shake the dust off their feet whenever they left Gentile territory. And it, and it was to symbolize the disassociation from the defilement of idolatry and paganism that characterized those, those towns. It was a, a warning, in a sense, a reminder that there is a God who judges. If the disciples did this, it was a testimony against the town that they would bear the consequences of their rejection of the Lord Jesus. And if people in the town saw them doing this, it should have got their attention symbolically and made them think about their spiritual condition. Now, <laughs> I don't know what the disciples thought when they received this commission. If I was in their sandals, I would be nervous. This is their first mission, going out on their own. I remember when I was a student at Emmaus, I think I was probably a junior. Yeah, I think so. So maybe 2021. 20, we uh, decided to take a team um, one weekend and go to Cook County Jail in Chicago and put on a service. And um, we were told that there would be a room full of, of inmates. And Cook County Jail's a pretty rough place. I remember I, I was assigned to, to preach the gospel to this group. And I remember being very nervous. I had never been in a jail among criminals. I was sheltered. And so this was very intimidating. I had a friend who uh, was uh, going to lead a song and sort of get the meeting going. He was so nervous. He was from, like, like I am, he was from Canada. He got up there. And he started somehow speaking in a southern accent. I, I, I asked him after, where did that come from? It's, I was just so nervous. <laughs> but you know what? The Lord gives you the grace and the empowering of his spirit to do what he calls you to do. And these disciples, I can see them being nervous going out two by two. We're not told if they they objected or they they had um, some further questions for Jesus. In Mark's summary in verses 12 and 13, 
All we see is they respond to this call with obedience. They go out, they preached, and in the authority of Jesus' name, they even cast out demons and healed the sick. We can imagine their joy. I can testify to the joy that we had preaching the gospel in that situation in Cook County Jail. We gave out uh, we gave out all the Bibles that we had afterwards. The Lord was very gracious, and it was such a joy. Um, there were probably times that this was this mission, though, was difficult for the disciples. No doubt they did face rejection in some of the towns they came to and, and some of the people they encountered along the way. There were probably times when they weren't sure where their next meal was going to come from. But the joy of seeing people impacted and transformed by the message of Jesus was worth it. Does that still keep us going? That, that prospect of seeing people impacted by the gospel. As we, his disciples, get the privilege of sharing that life-changing message. As we conclude, let's be reminded that the Lord calls us first to be with him. That was the first part of their calling, to be with Jesus, to see him, to learn from him, to worship him, to trust him. But then to respond to him when he calls us. When he calls us, to go out in obedience and speak to others of him, to serve him. Maybe it won't be frontline missions work. Maybe it'll be in the, the ministries of the local church. Maybe it will be in witnessing to, to our neighbors. Maybe it will be serving in all kinds of different ways that, that we have opportunities to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. But he calls us to, to as his his people as his followers to learn from him, to come together and, and worship him, to hear his word, and then get up and serve him together, to carry out his mission. And like those 12, to, to carry the message to others. To, to Now, we find ourselves in a very hostile culture. Um, it can be a daunting task. It can be a daunting task, but it's also what we were made for. And there is true joy in serving the king. And you know what? There is still a world full of people with hearts that are looking and longing for something. They're just looking in the wrong places. And we can tell them where to find what they're ultimately looking for. We love to hear what, what the Lord is doing. It is, it's so, such a delight as an elder to step back and see what the Lord is doing through his people in our local assembly. And it looks different for each one of us. And by design, the Lord has given us all different gifts. We have, we have different ministries that we gravitate towards. But our message is the same and unites us together to to lift up our, the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To make disciples, not of ourselves, but of him. What a privilege. Don't lose that sense of privilege and joy in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of rejection and disappointment. I came across a story, and I'll close with this. Daniel Doriani tells a story about how serving the Lord can change our perspective 
we can fall so easily into just a kind of mindset of complaining and looking at the negative. He writes this. A few years ago, a certain couple was very frustrated in their church. They were getting little from worship. It was a difficult time. Then they heard of a need for someone to disciple some single adults in their church. They were intrigued. It felt like the call of God. After they prayed together, they offered to help. And so they began working with single adults one-on-one. They hosted events in their home. They came to love the people. They loved serving the Lord in this way. And suddenly they loved their church again. And the complaining went. You know, the Lord calls us to serve him. Often it's hard. It is hard. Sometimes we face rejection and conflict and misunderstanding. But there's also great joy. There's a tremendous privilege when we come back to the basic perspective that we are serving the Lord Christ. And keeping him at the center helps us focus not on the stuff of this world, but on the needs that are all around us. And the glory of a Savior who alone can meet those needs. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the picture of the Lord Jesus that we see here in the Gospel of Mark. And even in the face of rejection, he is—he does not throw in the towel. He continues on the, the mission that he was on to, to redeem the likes of us and to train the likes of us to be his disciples, to be his followers. Father, we pray that this weekend we would be refreshed and encouraged as we look again at our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would just renew our sense of joy in him and sense of privilege in serving him. And and we pray that, that you would unite us in serving him together. And that as we do, you would give us the privilege of pointing others to the Savior and seeing lives transformed as only he, he can uh, work in, in lives. So we give ourselves afresh to you. We pray for your presence with us and for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. Uh, really just just wanted to remind everyone uh, that we do have two meetings tomorrow. The first is at 5 p.m. I invite everybody to come back. Uh, tomorrow there will be dinner in between, so 5 o'clock p.m. will be the first session. 7 p.m. will be the second, dinner in between.